So today is Father's Day here in Canada, and in honor of that, this morning my daughter says to me, Dad, you never listen to a word I say. And I said to her, that is a very strange way to begin a conversation. Uh, was, that didn't actually happen. That was, just, that was just a dad joke. And you know what they say about the difference between dad jokes and bad jokes? Just the first letter of each word. I miss you guys. These jokes are just not a whole lot of fun without you here. <laughs> it's Father's Day, and we were also hoping that uh, today would be a momentous day because we had hoped and anticipated that it would be our first Sunday live streaming here at our new building. But as Tati said earlier in the service, you would never believe it, but there has been another delay, and we do not yet have our occupancy permit in hand. Red tape and bureaucracy, I mean, it is, I have never experienced it like this, it is a ride. So much fun, or something. In any case, we are, I really believe we're on the cusp of, uh, of taking possession of this, of this building. And, and maybe for that reason that we're not quite there, maybe the text I'm going to teach on this morning is even more appropriate because it really brings these two ideas together. Fatherhood as well as being on the cusp of a new season of life and ministry. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 1 this morning and so just before we kind of get into it, I want to pray. Lord God, we thank you. I thank you for your word and we thank you that it is a living word. And that when we come to it, Lord, we, we, we hear you speaking to us in situations that uh, are, are kind of the same, you know, thousands of years ago and today. And I thank you, Lord, that, that you show us how to think about these things and how to live in the midst of these, these challenges. God, you're so good to us. And we pray that we would see more of your character, especially who you are as, as a father today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, Let's start with the context of Deuteronomy as a book, as a whole. Deuteronomy is, is set historically as the Israelites are gathered together on the east side of the Jordan River, which kind of connects the Sea of Galilee with the, with the Dead Sea in uh, modern day Israel and, and back then as well. So the, the location is important. They're on the east side of the Jordan River and, and they are about to enter into a land that has been promised to them by God for generations and generations. Going back to, to people like Abraham, they're one of their ancestors, their patriarchs. Uh, and one of the common demarcations of this land was that it would be from the Jordan River westward to the Mediterranean Sea. So they are gathered on the east side, about to cross over into the land that has been promised to them. And, and the book of Deuteronomy is an address given to them at this time by Moses who has been their leader for, for decades. He's been a prophet who has, has given them God's message, God's word. And Moses is now at the end of his life. He knows that he is not going to enter into the, the promised land with them. And so this is his final appeal, his final message, saying, remember, this is what you have seen, this is what you have heard. And, and that's actually reflected in the name of the book itself. Deuteronomy literally means second law. It's, God, it's, it's Moses 
kind of saying, this is what you need to remember. This is what I have told you before. Uh, and, and in Deuteronomy chapter 1, we're told that all of this is happening in the 40th year. And we might ask, well, the 40th year of what? Well, see, actually, the Israelites could have entered into the promised land 40 years before this. Uh, but for reasons that Moses is going to talk about and that we're going we're to look at as well, the Israelites kind of messed things up. And they, they made it so that God said, well, actually, you're not going to enter into the land. This generation is going to pass away, and it's going to be your kids who enter into the land. And so 40 years have, have kind of gone up. They've wandered around the wilderness for those years. That, that time has, has passed, and now here they are, ready. Uh, the, that, that generation has passed, and, and they're going to, this, this new generation is going to, going to take the calling. So, in other words, put this all together, the situation is ripe. There have been years and years of anticipation. And, and you know, the, the Bible is kind of big on this, isn't it? Last week we, we talked about Joseph, who spent 13 years as a slave and then as a prisoner, not knowing what God was up to. Here we're looking at 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, waiting to take possession of this land that God has promised. And before that, there were 400 years of slavery. This really doesn't sit well with our human tendency towards immediate gratification, especially in an age of Google and one-day Amazon Prime deliveries. We, we don't like to wait for anything. But it seems, and some of us have experienced this, that, that when you have to wait, when, when something builds in expectation, oftentimes the fulfillment makes it that much sweeter, that much more satisfying. Now, as I'm, as I'm kind of setting things up here, some of you already know where I'm going with this, because there are some connections between this and our church. And as I draw out some of those connections, I'm not saying that it's the exact same thing or that we are actually the fulfillment of this passage, that the original context doesn't matter because it's all about us. I'm not saying any of that. I'm, I'm just saying, as I was kind of praying before, that, that the human heart stays essentially the same through the ages. And so does God's character. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we come across situations in the Bible that actually bear a lot of resemblance to, to our own situation. So here, here's the connection as, as a church. We, for a lot of years now, have had a kind of a nomadic existence uh, without a, a home of our own. And, and now we're on the cusp of taking possession of this place that God has certainly had his hand in preparing for us. But there has been a lot of waiting and anticipation for this. Here are some numbers, just to give you context. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right about these numbers. I might be one or two years off. You'll have to forgive me if I am. But it has been two years now since we started building this facility. It's been four years since we applied for the development permit. That's where I kind of came into the picture as, as a pastor of the church. I believe it's been seven years since we bought this, this land as a church with the, with the goal, with the expectation of developing it. Uh, it has been 21 years since we began worshiping in a rented theater, again with the idea that we were going to really look for a home of our own. It's been 41 years, going back to 1980, since 
uh, we first kind of made an offer on, uh, on, on a piece of property. 1980, 41 years since we did that. That was obviously unsuccessful, but, but that's kind of the marker. And it has been 58 years, going back to 1963, since the membership of our church made an official decision to look for property in Deep Cove to plant a church. 58 years. I mean, that, that blows me away to think that after those decades of waiting, we right now, at this moment, are right there at the, at the edge of actually seeing it fulfilled. And I, I think especially of, of, of how crazy it is that, that people like me who are so new to the church although already four years, some of you have been, like, you're, some of you are way, way newer. A lot of you are, are much newer than that even. And we get to be the ones to, to see and experience and enjoy what, what people in this church have been praying for and longing for for decades, many of whom have actually passed on to, to be with the Lord. And we get to be that generation. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying it's the exact same situation, Right? I mean, I, I don't think it was some sin, grievous sin in the church that caused the delay, at least not that I'm aware of. And I really hope that I'm not like Moses, where I'm not actually going to get to, here I am addressing you, but I'm not actually going to get to take possession of the place. That'd be terrible if the occupancy permit was like, well, once Craig, once Craig is no longer the pastor, then we'll get it. Then we're, we're in for some trouble there. I don't think it's the exact same situation, but there is a connection. And some of you have experienced that personally as well, where you have spent a long, long time waiting for something, and maybe you wondered if it was ever going to happen, and you wondered if God was, was, it was really going to come through for you on this thing. And, and maybe you've, you've seen it through, and you experienced the fulfillment and the joy in that. That's what the Israelites were about to experience in Deuteronomy 1. But first, Moses wants to go back and say, hey, remember what took place. So Moses tells them, Here, here's what happened. Forty years before, God had delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He had brought them through the wilderness, brought them to the edge of the promised land. And that's where the Israelites had an idea. Let's choose 12 men to go out and spy out the land. Give us a scouting report. And that idea seemed good to Moses, and it received sanction from God. And they went out, and, and their report was that the land is lush, it's beautiful, it's great, but it came with a caveat. And, and here it is, and Edward's going to read for us from Deuteronomy 1, verses 26 to 28. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear, they say. The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large, with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Amorites there. So the, the problem, the reason the Israelites are not, were not willing to take, uh, to take hold of the land was not because the people there were too big and too strong. It wasn't because the challenge was insurmountable. You know that, right? I mean, that's what they say. That's what they're complaining about. But that's not really 
the issue. It's not even that they struggle with fear and with doubt. I mean, I mean yes, that's true. That's a reality. But, but you can go even further than that and say that's not the real root reason that they are unwilling to, to follow the, the calling to take the land. What's the real reason? The root problem here is that they have believed a lie about God. They say, they grumble in their tents and say, The Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. The Lord hates us. His purposes are to destroy us. Before any of the fear and any of the doubt and before any of the worry about these very large people and large cities, that's that's what Deuteronomy puts front and center. They believe that God hated them and wanted to destroy them. It's, it's like for the Israelites, they, they saw the challenge in front of them and the only thing they could think is that this means that God doesn't love us. It was the only conception they had. They could not conceive of why else God would put them in a situation where the obstacles were too great for them to overcome on their own. They could not conceive that God might do that in order to display His power and His love through them. You know, one of the ways of defining sin at its most basic uh, in its most basic form, is that sin is believing a lie about who God is. Whenever you sin, somewhere, somehow, you have believed that God is not trustworthy. You have believed that His ways are not actually the best ways. You have believed that God cannot actually satisfy you or fulfill you, and so you are turning to lust, or to legalism, or to status, or something else to, to satisfy you. You have believed that another God, another idol, is better and more worthy of worship than God. You have believed a lie about God. This is what we see in Genesis 3, with the whole story of Adam and Eve and their, their sin. God has told them you can eat from any fruit in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they encounter this serpent, Adam and Eve. They encounter a serpent, a wily, crafty creature, who says to Eve, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Which is a blatant lie, right? God never said anything like that. And Eve knows that, so she replies, well, no, 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 God didn't say that. He just said you couldn't eat from, any, from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you can't touch it. Which is interesting, because God never actually said anything about not touching it. See, Eve seems like she is resisting the lie, but she has actually already taken the bait from the serpent and made God out to be more restrictive than he actually is. And the serpent knows that that he's got her hooked, and so he goes, no, 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 you see, God has only given you that instruction because he knows that if you eat that fruit, that you will be like him. In other words, the serpent is saying, God isn't giving you these commands because he loves you or because he's seeking what's best for you. He's giving them because he's self-interested. He's only looking out for himself. That's why. And Eve believes the lie. She eats the fruits and, and the rest is history. But it all starts with falling for this lie. 
that is essentially the same as in Deuteronomy. God does not love you, he hates you, and he's seeking to destroy you. Is this not sometimes what we think when we come across a challenge, uh, a, a, a situation that just seems like it's, it's way too difficult, that, that God must not really love us, because if he did, then he would, then he would take away all the obstacles, and, and he wouldn't allow us to go through this, and he would make everything pain-free. Is it not what we think sometimes when we encounter temptation? Don't we think, well, if, if I was really filled with the Holy Spirit like God says I am if I'm a follower of Jesus, then I, I wouldn't be struggling with a, a desire to sin. I, I shouldn't be dealing with this. God must not really be true to His promises. See, we, we often think if, if we come across difficulty, it's because God has abandoned us. We don't consider that perhaps... Perhaps in those situations, God is allowing us to go through it because He wants to make His presence especially known. He wants to make His love and His power especially known. See, sometimes as a pastor, when I think about ministry in greater Vancouver, where I've, I've spent most of my adult life serving uh, the, and, and proclaiming the gospel, I, I sometimes feel like in this, in this place where so many people are affluent and busy, it's so difficult for the gospel to break through. And if I'm honest with you, sometimes I wonder, God, why, why did you call me here? I mean, do you, have any, do you have any use for me? Do you intend on using me at all? And when I start thinking along those lines, I have fallen for a lie. And I need to repent. I need to remember what God has done in ages past through His faithful people. I think about the prophets in the Old Testament. Some of them, God told them straight up, I'm going to give you words to say and nobody's going to listen to you. Like they're going to try to kill you. They were dealt with a way more difficult hand than I have been. Or I think about Jesus wrestling with the tempter face to face when He was at His weakest point after 40 days of fasting. I think about Jesus wrestling with the calling of the cross so much that he sweat blood in Gethsemane. When we go through difficult times, it's not because God is absent, but it's because he is making himself known in those times. And I think about our church, and, and has our journey to this point been without its bumps and bruises? <laughs> nope. Absolutely not. It, it has not been smooth. There have been challenges at every point. A couple of years ago, one of our board members, uh, one of our elders at the time, walked the, the whole board through some of, these, some of these bumps, the false starts, the hiccups. Talked about all of these times where we thought, okay, we're going we're gonna to buy this ladder, we're going to develop a, a new facility here, and every one of them fell through when we were going to sell our old property to buy this one, all of a sudden there was this costly and significant and necessary repair that was, was discovered, really kind of took a chunk out of the savings that we had. When we, when we made the decision to buy this property, it was far from a unanimous decision in the church. There were difficult conversations and meetings and, and votes the property itself, nobody thought that we would be able to build a building in it, on it that would, uh, that would actually be able to host a Sunday service just because of the dimensions 
of, of the place. So, so that was a challenge. At, at first, there was a, so there's, there's a ditch along the side of the property. And at first, uh, it was going to be designated as a creek, which would significantly limit what we could do on the property. And it took a lot of hard work and a lot of uncovering of evidence and persuasion to, to have that designation made as, as a ditch. Uh, throughout this, this construction period, as some of you know, we have faced an onslaught of criticism and opposition from a few vocal members of, of, the, of the community at large. And now, as we're getting closer to the date, it's just been like one delay after the next, after the next, really offsetting when we had hoped to be in here and, and ministering and serving the community. And, and so all of all of these all of these difficulties would have I think convinced me at various points that no we, we I don't I don't know if this is what we should be doing but I, I praise God I thank God for for our leaders over the decades really who continued to persevere in this conviction that this was God's calling. They did not apparently believe what the Israelites did, that all of this was evidence that God actually uh, hated us, that, that He was seeking to destroy us, but rather they believed something different about God, something that comes out in, in the next few verses, which Edward will read from us, uh, verses 29 to 31. Then I said to you, Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes, and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. So Mo, this, is, this was Moses' response to the Israelites 40 years before, when they, they said, oh no, no, we can't do it, we're too afraid, God, God isn't with us. This was Moses' response, and, and the climax of it is verse 31, where he says, There you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. The lie that they have believed is that God hates them and wants to destroy them. The truth that they needed to understand was that God has been like a father to them, carrying them all the way. And Moses prefaces this by saying, there you saw. Where? Well, in Egypt and in the wilderness. Moses says, look at the evidence. You witnessed how God loosened the grip of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, on you. You saw how a sea split in half in front of you. You walked through it and it came crashing down on your enemies. You saw drinking water flow out of a rock. You saw food miraculously provided for you in the wilderness. You saw uh, battles that you had no business winning and, and yet you were victorious. I mean, look at the evidence. See, sometimes in my marriage, there, there have been times where I have, I have wondered or questioned, does Carolyn really love me? Maybe I'm just having like a bad day. Maybe I feel really anxious because I've had a cup of coffee. Caffeine does weird, weird things to me. just creates this anxiety. And so like, I, I just go, oh man, I don't, I don't know if I'm really loved. And, and, and at those times, I just have to look at the evidence and realize, well, she, she made me my lunch and, and you know, I'm working from home and she brought up an ice drink out of nowhere for me. 
which by the way I'm kind of getting used to and so when we do move into this place I think I'm going to have to write it into Nate's job description that he needs to provide me with an iced drink every now and then you know I'll look at Carolyn and how she's how she's spending eagerly spending time with me and it's like you, you dummy of course she loves you what do you think just look at what she has done for you a number of years ago um, when I was at one of my lowest points I started seeing a counselor a Christian counselor and uh, uncovered a lot of things about myself and one of the things he helped me see was that I really struggled to understand and believe that God loved me I had no problem believing that God loved other people but the thought that God loved me was something I struggled to grasp and, and honestly sometimes I still do for various reasons and one of the things he had me do which was one of the most transformative things I've done in my in my life is that he had me write out a list of ways in which I knew that God loved me uh, events quotes Bible verses whatever and he told me just go through those one by one every day and I did that and it was like it just it, just, it was looking at the evidence what has God done yes of course he loves me that's the truth and so Moses says, here's the truth. Like if the Israelites look at what God has done for them, they will discover that God loves them, that he is as a father who has carried them all the way. And as a dad, I love that image so much, that God is a father who carries us. And I wish I had some epic story of some dangerous storm where I heroically carried my children to safety. I don't, I don't know if I have a story like that. I have, a, I have a million stories of going on like a family walk on a beautiful day and two minutes in I've got one kid complaining that they're tired and me needing to give a 45-minute shoulder ride and carrying them all the way. i got lots of those stories. But, but here's the crazy thing. I'm already at the point now where I, I look back at pictures of when the kids were, were younger and even more dependent and when I would carry them all the time and I, I, start, I start crying. <laughs> and it's crazy because they're like, my kids are four and seven years old. Like they're not that old. They're still pretty dependent. They're still pretty small. I carry my four-year-old like all the time. But there's something about like looking back at these memories that just creates an, an emotional like a waterfall in, in me. And, and I can't imagine what it's going to be like when they're like teenagers or when they move out of the house. I am going to be a wreck. It's, I'm going to have to take a month off just so that I can weep and, and sob. But my point is, when, when I think about my kids and I, I think about them being, you know, dependent and, and young and innocent and me carrying them on my shoulders, my, my heart just throbs. Do you and I understand that this is how God sees his people? And Moses knew this because God had told him that. In Exodus 4, long before the, the plagues and the Red Sea and the spies, kind of at the beginning of Moses' career, God had told him to go to Pharaoh and say, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Israel is God's son. He loves his son. 
And this image is not just about Israel in the Old Testament. It is about God's people throughout the ages. In John chapter 1, we read, To all who did receive him, talking about Jesus here, to those who believed in his name, in the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. All who trust in Jesus are children of God. All who trust in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, which is the Aramaic word that essentially means Daddy. Abba. Father, by the Spirit, this is what we cry out, Daddy, that's who God is to us because of Jesus. And to go back to the Old Testament, to a verse that isn't actually about God being a Father, but I I still want to bring this up here. Zephaniah 3 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. He delights in you. He rejoices over you with singing. You are his child. He is your Abba, your Daddy, your Father. I know that not all of us have had earthly dads that made us feel this way, that, that we, we did not experience our earthly fathers delighting in us. We, we're not sure what it means for a father to carry us when we go through difficult times. And maybe for that reason, this day is, is difficult for you. And, and maybe for this reason, the whole idea of God as father actually is, is, is kind of a turnoff for you. You go, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. And I want to encourage you today not to discard the idea of God being a father because of your experience but instead to let God discard your image of fatherhood and redefine it in light of who he is allow God to say to you that's not what I'm like if if that if that's the case for you some of you have had great fathers many of you And that's not an issue. But for some of you, you need to let God say to you, that's not who I am. That's not what I do. I carry you. I delight in you. I rejoice in you. I want to see you grow and thrive and be all that I have made you to be. God carries us like a father. And this is the extent to which he carries us. The Hebrew word for carry here is it's a common word. It it's, occurs often in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word nasah. But two of the times we see this word are in this incredible passage from Isaiah that we have looked at a, a bunch of times this year. We spent a lot of time with the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, we read that, um, that surely he, referring to this servant of the Lord figure, this individual that he took up, nasah, he nasahed our pain and bore our suffering. He carried it. And then a few verses later in verse 12, 
For He bore, He nasad, are uh, the sins of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. God, through the suffering servant, carried our pain and He carried our sins. See, it's not just that God, like a father, carries us, but that through the servant, He carries the sins of rebellious sinners so that they can become His children. And we believe that that is fulfilled in Jesus, that through the cross of Jesus, our sins have been lifted from us, that He carried them for us so that we could be His children. And this can be true of you today. If you trust in Jesus, if you trust that God has saved you through Jesus, then you are His child. He is your Father. Like a father, He carried Israel and He has carried us all the way. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, the tragedy is that the people heard these words. Moses had reminded them of the truth about who God is, and yet they had, in that previous generation, they had insisted on believing the lie. They chose not to believe the truth. And and because of that, God said, okay, well then I can't have you entering the promised land. We're going to wait for another generation. And that prompted the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. See, we always, we always have a choice. We have a choice to believe the lie or believe the truth about who God is. And, and so you can choose to believe that God uh, is not that interested in you, that, that his purposes for you are not good, or you can believe that God does love you, that he is as a father to you, and that in Jesus he has carried your sins so that you can be reconciled to him. And we have that choice as a church as well. There's always a temptation to believe a lie. On the one hand, we can believe that we got to this point because of our own strength and our own ingenuity and our own perseverance. It's because of us, because of our greatness that we've gotten to this point as a church. On the other hand, we could believe that uh, given the, the challenge of gospel ministry in a place like this, that God cannot, He's not going to do anything through us. It's impossible. You know, that, that the rejection and opposition that we might face is, is evidence of that. Or, and or I was going to say, and if we do that, if we insist on believing one of those lies or, or another lie about who God is, then even if we move into this building and even if we start doing all kinds of things, I don't believe it's going to do a whole lot of good. That, that we will metaphorically still be wandering in the wilderness if that's what we believe. But we can choose to believe that we have gotten to this place only because of God's grace. We can believe that God has carried us all the way. There's no way we would be here otherwise. We can believe that God is our Father who in Jesus has reconciled us to Himself. We can believe that God has called us here to proclaim the Gospel in this place, in, in, a, in a difficult place in some ways, because He wants to display the magnitude of His power and His love. The question is, what will you and I and we together choose to believe about God? Will we believe 
a lie that comes from the mouth of the serpent, or will we believe the truth that comes from the mouth of God himself? Lord, I want to pray for our church as we are on the metaphorical east side of the Jordan River and we're preparing to cross over in so many ways, Lord. We're preparing for a new season. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep us in the truth. That you would keep us in the truth of of who has gotten us here, who has carried us this far. And that you would keep us in the truth, Lord, of, of your character and your purpose for us going forward. I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from the lies of the enemy. God, I pray that as a church we would experience an outpouring of your love and your mercy. God, that we would know you even more deeply as our Father. And that we would witness your power at work through us. Thank you, God. Thank you for who you are. And I pray, Lord, that the, that the truth of who you are would, uh, would permeate us through and through. In the name of Jesus, amen.